Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another edition of Moving to Live. Our ethos is movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. We try to interview professionals across the movement spectrum because we understand at the end of, end of the day, anybody who is involved in movement either wants their clients, patients, or athletes to either move more or move better, whether it's to move with less pain or to move more efficiently. Some of our best guests come from recommendations from other guests. And a big thank you to Andy Gillum, who recommended today's guest, Lisa McFadden. The interesting thing with podcasting is I now have a lineage of three people in a row, starting with Brian Garrity to Andy to Dr. McFadden today, hopefully to two or three more as far as I can trace it's not who you know, it's who you know who knows somebody. So Dr. McFadden, thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live this afternoon. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. My favorite question I always ask on Moving to Live or the first one I always ask is, do you get in an elevator? You get to talking because the elevator is really slow because somebody's pressing all the buttons and they say, so what do you do? What's your 30-second, uh, not in a negative way, elevator spiel? My name is Lisa McFadden and I... Oh, man, this one's a tricky one. I, I wear lots of different hats. Um, but uh, yeah, so the way I look at, at what I do is, is I really put science into practice, whether it's with um, athletes or with patients. And my area of expertise is in biomechanics. So I like to use biomechanics to help people move better. Um, and then I also like to inspire, um, whether that's inspiring communities around science or whether that's inspiring um students through mentorship and education. Right now, if I'm correct, you are in South Dakota? Yes, that's correct. I uh, work at Sanford Health in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I know we were chatting a little bit before we started recording, and both of us grew up in upstate New York. And I have to be honest, I never thought I would end up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I never thought I would go to grad school in Alabama. And I would imagine that there's an interesting story for going all the way from New York State with multiple stops 
all the way to South Dakota. And I would imagine if you're anybody else, like anybody else who's in the movement field, there's probably a few more stops along the way before you retire. <laughs> well, it's funny. I almost ended up in Pittsburgh um, along my way, and I've spent some time in Alabama um, on a couple of different business trips. So it sounds like we've got a, a similar uh, set of journeys. Um, but yes, I, I grew up in upstate New York in a little town called Oswego. Um, not quite as little as uh, where I heard you grew up. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I grew up on Lake Ontario. Um, my dad was a doctor and I always, always wanted to be a doctor, um, specifically a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And my dad always told me, no, you do not. Um, he said, you really want to be an engineer. And I said, no, 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 dad. Engineers are big nerds. <laughs> and he said, but you're really good at math and you're, you have a passion for this. And um, I really suggest you become an engineer. So I very boldly went to the University of Rochester, pre-med and applied math saying, you're wrong, dad. Um, but, you know, had a, had a moment of clarity probably after my first year where I did realize and did some self-reflection and thought, you know, the type of uh, mother that I wanted to be and the type of, uh, you know, grown up that I wanted to be really did not focus around having call and, and prioritizing patients, which is absolutely something that you have to do, but really being able to have a little bit of flexibility in, um, in, a, in my lifestyle. And so I finally listened to my father after a long time of not <laughs> and uh, decided that I would actually transfer into biomedical engineering. Um, where I ended up focusing on biomechanics as my concentration with minors in mechanical engineering and applied math. Um, throughout my undergrad, um, I really, really enjoyed all of that. And so as I started thinking about what was next, um, I started getting really interested in robotics and into um, that new field that was emerging um, back then. And um, decided that I really wanted to go and get a PhD in that. So um, I had been at a ski resort. So I grew up ski racing and I was in Montana with our family on vacation and watched a bunch of um, ski racers who had disabilities, whether they were in a sit ski or whether they were missing a leg skiing. And I was just very inspired. I looked at them and was just like, wow, you know, they're amazing. They're, they're better skiers than I am. And then you could see that as soon as they were off the hill where they were excelling, there were a lot of daily life challenges. So I started getting really interested in prosthetics, wanting to um, kind of help um, people that you know needed additional help outside of um, being super rock star athletes to help them in their daily lives. Um, and so robotics was sort of that pathway for me. My senior design project ended up being a surgical robot. And then I ended up getting into Carnegie Mellon. Um, at the Robotics Institute, which is where I almost went to grad school, um, and then the University of Utah. And uh, my husband and I, boyfriend at the time, looked at each other and said, we should go skiing. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, it kind of took that wild card. Uh, Robotics Institute was number one in the U.S. at the time, but um, decided to go out to Utah, um, where they had just won an IGERT from the NSF um, in robotics. And so I was in the bioengineering department, and kind of hybrid um, into mechanical engineering. So I really took courses and had faculty that were on my committee from both worlds. And what I was able to do there was my, my PhD was focused on spinal cord injuries. And what we were working on was functional electrical stimulation. So taking an array of electrodes and putting them into the peripheral muscles and then stimulating those. And my job was to figure out what the mechanics looked like. So creating models of the limb 
and then creating control algorithms to figure out how we could control this limb to get somebody to go from sitting to standing um, and to do it in a way that they didn't get tired while they were standing. Because the way our muscles work, if you contract one all the way, you might get yourself to go into a specific movement, but then that muscle is eventually going to fatigue and you can't, and can't sustain it. So what does that look like as well? I know. I remember when I took an adapted class in my undergraduate degree, we had a student on campus. This is a very small college, Gettysburg College, who had lost uh, above the knee amputation due to bone cancer. And he came in and talked to our adapted class. And I mean, you know, I'd seen him around campus and had played pickup basketball with him. But I never realized, I mean, one of the things he said, and you can probably correct me on this since my numbers are off, but he said he typically took him almost twice as much energy to play basketball, say for 45 minutes than somebody like me who was able-limbed, if that's the correct term. And I remember at that time thinking, that's just absolutely amazing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of things that we take for granted, I think, um, and, and things that we probably don't understand. And um, there's definitely opportunities out there to learn and then to figure out how we can uh, take those and, and improve people's um, lives and, and help them out. You know, one of the people who's really inspired me was uh, Dr. Hugh Herr. Um, he's from the, uh, he's, I think he was at MIT. I could be incorrect. It might have been uh, Harvard, but he was an amputee himself and has really made significant strides in the way that um, we look at prosthetics and ankle movement and those types of things. So, um, you know, I think there's definitely some some things that can be done. And one of the things I think that's really cool is when somebody who does have um, a different perspective is able to leverage their perspective and advance um, science as well based on that. We're talking with Dr. Lisa McFadden. I'm curious, after you switched from pre-med, did your dad ever say, I told you so? Or did you, he just kind of sit back with kind of a, a smirk on his face as if he knew you were going to do it all along? He still tells me, I told you so. <laughs> I find it interesting. I know uh, a number of people who made the decision not to go to medical school for reasons similar to what you said, and all of them either had uh, parents or close relatives who were physicians. And I think to some extent, you have the inside view. You know, when I go to the doctor, I see the doctor, oh, that's cool. You know, they're able, they're able to do a a surgery on an ankle and the athlete or the person is able to return to function. You saw all the missed dinners, all the missed ski races and things like that because your father was on call or he got called in be to, to, form, to do anesthesiology. Yep, for sure. Um, you know, and, and I think that's, there are still days where I personally love, love surgery, right? I still do. Um, I watch surgical shows on TV. I, you know, love surgery. I was very lucky that I was able to actually do a little bit of uh, that kind of stuff in, a, in some animal labs when I was in grad school as well. And so, you know, I do love surgery. I, I enjoy it. And I will say there's some days where I kind of go, huh, that would have been a lot of fun. And then there's other days where I, I do get to do those things with my kids and be at their competitions and things like that. And I go, huh, I'm really glad I'm here. So, um, you know, it, it's definitely a personal decision as to what direction you choose. And I think also really being able to reflect upon who you are and what's important to you and really go down a path that allows you to reflect your values um, and really be true to yourself. And everyone's values are different and that's very legitimate. And we all end up in different paths that fit us very well. I think that's excellently put. I know there's often the 
pressure, even as, as a graduate student, that depending on the lab that you're in or depending on what the other student's goals are, there's kind of the pressure. If you don't do this, whatever this may be, then you're either lesser than the rest of us or you're not fulfilling your goal or your duty. And when you're describing uh, your decision you went through to where to pursue a doctorate, and I am 100% with you, pick the mountains because you never know when you can, when you can uh, have the opportunity to do that. I mean, they're just absolutely beautiful quality of life. But I'm curious, uh, from what you're describing, you would think that you would end up, in, no negative connotation here, but a nerd in the lab pumping out research. And it sounds like working at uh, Sanford Sports Science, you do a little bit more than that. What was the decision behind that when you finished your doctorate and said, you know, do I want to go hardcore, quote unquote, nerd in the lab? Or do I want to be more broad based and maybe not only basic, but also applied in the direction that I use my degrees? That's a, that's a great question. And I think part of it is really about who I am as a person as well. So in graduate school, um, I was also a chair of a conference. I was the graduate school advisory council chair. Um, I was an instructor and my advisor left after my second year. And I did my PhD over Skype for two years um, because he went and worked at the Australia Institute of Sport as the director of um, biomechanics there. And so I ended up doing a lot of that. So I've always had somewhat of a unique experience, which I think lended itself to me being open to those. I'm also a very social person. I like helping people and um, so actually after grad school, I ended up taking a job as a, an engineer, um, at L3 communications, which is a defense contractor in San Diego. And I was the scientist who, um, was diving into data and solving problems and all of those types of things. Um, but some of the skill sets that I have in terms of communication or project management and organization, um, that I had developed in other experiences lended itself well to identifying that. I'd be really good at working with our customers. I'd be really good at putting together strategies and things like that. And so um, some of those, those skills and natural talents lended itself to my taking on some of those roles and then um, really training those at L3. And then Stanford came looking for somebody to help lead our sports science initiatives and our orthopedic research initiatives. And um, that seemed very interesting to me. And so um, ended up coming here and, I do. I, I, I get to, like I said, one of my passions is inspiring or mentoring others. So I get to lead others and um, teach residents and medical students and graduate students simultaneously. I get to drive strategy while also doing some of the research and, and work. So um, it fits me well. I also probably have a little bit of FOMO um, and definitely I find a lot of things to be enjoyable. So one of the things that suits me well is being able to be involved and um, kind of doing a bunch of different things so that I can really continue to kind of engage all the different passions I have. And I know we were talking before we started recording. I think the listeners would be interested, especially those of us who like uh, less urban places and more rural places. But what exactly is uh, Sanford Health? I think I thought that was interesting when I was doing the research uh, after interviewing Dr. Gillum and before I interviewed you. Yeah, so Sanford Health is a uh, healthcare organization based in the Dakotas in Minnesota. Um, we have four major um, hospital healthcare organization areas, Sioux Falls, Fargo, North Dakota, um, Bismarck, North Dakota, and Bemidji, Minnesota, with 
different hospital or different uh, medical centers scattered throughout. So what we focus on is rural medicine, and we create this methodology called the hub and spoke method, where we have bigger centers, and then you start going out to smaller centers and then more rural medical centers. Our physicians do a lot of outreach, and we're able to really help provide community health care to more rural areas and give them access to high-quality health care. And then we've actually been lucky enough that um, we have also Stanford World Clinics, and we've been able to replicate this model in parts of Africa, parts of China, and really be able to take the way that this works and provide healthcare access to a large number of people across the world. And I'm curious, with you being based in South Dakota, how much travel do you have to do to the other hubs, or does uh, telecommuting and the wonders of the internet uh, make that minimal? Um, you know, it, it's a little bit of both. Um, I actually probably don't travel as much as I would like to. Um, part of that is because uh, I had a unique situation when we moved out from California that my husband stayed there and I brought my two young children with me. And so um, there's, there's a little bit of personal work-life balance that has to go into your decision-making as to how you manage across a, a big enterprise like this. Um, luckily, I'm very tech-savvy, so I believe in lots of face-to-face -face communication like we have right now via Zoom or um, you know, Skype for business and uh, lots of visits whenever possible. Um, but it is, it is difficult to be able to do things. So it's really about also building a team that you trust on the ground and being able to have um, good communication with them and really understand what everyone's trying to accomplish so that people can get their jobs done without you being there. Um, and really just making sure that people know what they're supposed to be doing and have ownership over that. And I'm very fortunate. I have a really good team. So um, in general, my travel is, is limited because of that. And I know from looking at your bio and the questionnaire you filled out that even though Sanford Health is pretty good size, you have been involved with other organizations that are larger. Uh, this may be a loaded question. It's not meant to be. Uh, do you find it's easier to do, as you said, you are an individual with unique traits and unique skills, which we all have. Do you find it's easier to have them recognized and it makes it easier to do your job because the other people are, because it's a smaller organization than some of the larger organizations or institutions you may have been involved in in the past? I think that the question you're asking actually comes down to culture. Um, a small organization can have a not great culture, a large organization can have a great culture. And it's really about being in a place that makes you feel home and that makes you feel valued. Um, and I've been very lucky. You know, I've had a lot of really, really good support and champions throughout my career. Um, you know, being, being in a, a male dominated field, you sort of have to have a lot of people who support you. And I've been very, very fortunate whether it was in grad school with a lot of support from faculty across multiple departments or working at L3, where I had a tremendous uh, leader that I worked for when I started there. Um, Dr. Chan was, was great and trained me up, and then um, Dr. Stu Miller as well. So we really had just a, a family there. We would play Frisbee, you know, twice a week, and um, it, was, it was like being a family. We had birthday parties and everything. Um, and it was a huge organization, but our, our group was, was very close. And now here at Sanford, it's the same thing. We're like a family. Um, we talk to each other. We have regular communication. And we're really focused on what kind of culture we want to build because we want to make sure that we're acknowledging the special traits of everybody. And um, that's what I've, I've really appreciated about all the places I've worked is that um, when I go and interview, I'm really looking for a culture fit. And I've been very fortunate to find good cultures wherever I've gone.
Well put. I'm, I'm always curious with this, especially since we're in the middle of COVID. As I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, some of our best interviews come from somebody that I've interviewed in the past who says, hey, you need to interview this. And Dr. Gillum said, you know, you need to talk to Lisa. She's great. Um, you talk about a, 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 a culture and you're somebody who's in a position with the sports medicine example is you are the person at the top or one of the people at the top. How do you work to develop a good culture versus a bad culture? And obviously this could be a five hour or a five day conversation, <laughs> but you know, we, we don't have five hours or five days. If you were, if you were to offer somebody a suggestion or to mentor, you know, a, a young professional who was in the leadership role, you know, what are two or three tips that somebody can really do to promote a healthy culture um, in, in their work environment? Well, I think the first thing is, is um, I'll be, I'll be honest, like, you know, there's, there's always going to be moments where you're going to question if you have a good culture, there's always going to be kind of those, those valleys where you're like, oh, no one's getting along or people are, are grumpy or, or whatever. Um, and I think one of the things is not to get discouraged, but to think what's going on, what have we stopped doing? What are, what could we do better? Um, and really just keep that, uh, always keep a pulse on it. Always think what can we do better? Where is this grumpiness coming from or, or whatever? Um, is it a lack of communication? Is it a lack of um, those, those appreciation moments? What are those things? Um, I think the other is to just really get to know your staff and get to know how they feel appreciated, get to know, um, you know, how to communicate with them. Cascading communication is incredibly important. Um, one of the seri- one of the authors I've learned a lot from over the last year has been Patrick Guancioni. I've read a lot of his books. Um, and I think I would just encourage any new leader to read Five Dysfunctions of a Team. To be honest, it's one of the most difficult things is to try to build a culture. And I'm still definitely not saying I'm an expert, but how you build trust and accountability and honesty and openness and, you know, all of those things across the team is really important and something that I'm even, you know, revisiting right now. And I think the last thing I would share is just become comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, that's, that's the hardest thing for me. Uh, I've taken a lot of personality tests and one of the things that I am is, is an achiever um, from the Enneagram and I'm an achiever, a helper and an enthusiast. Those three things, uh, really define me. But as an achiever, it's really difficult to be uncomfortable because you like to collect your gold stars. And I think that's one of the things that I've learned is how do you become comfortable with being uncomfortable with challenging other people and with challenging yourself? Um, Because I project onto others too, if I have to have a difficult conversation, how they're feeling, and that makes me even more uncomfortable. Um, I guess that'll lead me to my last point, which I lied, the last one wasn't, but um, self-reflection is important and really getting to know yourself. That's, I think, probably important as well, because if you can't, you can't have these awareness moments like I'm talking about where I understand my personality and therefore how that influences my interactions with other people. I think one of the best pieces of advice that was given to me uh, by one of the people on my doctoral committee was you're always going to have a list of things to do. You're never going to check them all off. And the sooner you accept that, the better. (laughs) <laughs> and, it's, and I'll admit it took me probably 15 years to realize, oh, Pete was right. As, as, a, uh, as a leader or somebody who's in a leadership position with these tips and these ideas, I think you find some people who are gold star collectors kind of always self-assess, what can I do better? Why is this person a jerk? Why does this person do well? But other people don't. And the things that you're asking 
sometimes have to take place. You're not going to say, okay, we have two hours today for you to do this. How do you encourage the people that you work with both at the same level as you and also in some cases above you and below you to, hey, this is the step because it's not just Dr. McFadden saying for the people under me, this is the way we do it. It's it's a give and take. And sometimes I know you'll say, wow, I really missed it on that one. And I'm glad somebody was comfortable enough to tell me. So how do you convince people to take the time for these self-reflections? That's a good question. That's actually, you know, something that I'm continually working on trying to figure out. Um, and one of the things that I've been doing recently is, is having, so doctors have M&M, right? They have morbidity, morbidity and mortality conferences, um, pilots. So uh, I'm actually a private pilot. So I have a lot of insight into the, the aviation world as well. And if there's ever an accident, pilots will dive into that, right? Whether um, you know, it was a simple hangar rash accident where you kind of just, you know, dented your plane on the hangar. Everyone's supposed to go back and say, okay, I reflect on this. What did we do wrong and where can we do better? And so we've been starting to implement what I call lessons learned, whether it's a quick email from everybody who participated in something just saying, okay, let's talk about what we did really well and let's talk about where we could have improved. Or if it's something that's a little bit more complicated, getting everybody together um, and having a more difficult discussion, you know, something went a little bit sideways. How do we get together and talk about that? Um, the other thing we're trying to do is uh, kind of be more proactive as well. So like with our biomechanics team, we're really starting, we're actually going to start having a biomechanics grand rounds and really start saying, okay, let's start learning from each other. Let's actually present on what we're doing and open it up to comments and um, those types of things. And I know one of your specific areas as well is how do you take and break down these silos? And one of the things about the silos is that you all speak a different language and there's a little bit of ego that comes into it as well, right? I mean, uh, you end up with a lot of people who are experts in their fields trying to talk about something that's very much related to their field, but they all talk about it differently and they all see it a little bit differently. We all bring in our own perceptions and our biases and our expertise that all kind of can cause people to, to butt heads. And so one of the things we're always trying to work on as well is hearing other people and challenging other people respectfully and professionally, because then we can challenge ourselves and learn from those other viewpoints and really improve the way that we think. I know you and I were talking about podcasts before recording. You mentioned your husband likes to listen to actually watch Joe Rogan. And I've talked to another number of people about Joe Rogan, whether you like him or you don't like him. I think one of the things that he does best when he has some of these experts or geniuses like Elon Musk on there is he's not afraid to say, I don't know what you're talking about. Can you simplify that? And I know, and I'm sure you, you also have had similar experiences. There are some people that are in this field and some people who are very highly educated and very smart. They're just curious. I mean, they, they gravitate to somebody who knows something that they don't, that they don't know. And then there's other people who, you know, they're, they're very defensive. It's like, well, you know, for example, I have a doctorate, so I know everything. So you can't tell me everything, anything if you don't have a doctor, you can't tell me anything because you only have an exercise science doctorate and I have a physics doctorate or something like that. How do you, as somebody who's in a leadership position, how do you convince people to open up and take other uh, take other viewpoints? Because I know that in some instances, I've been in a number of situations professionally where that's encouraged. And there's other instances where you do that and very quickly you realize, I can't do that because it's going to affect me long term because somebody's going to hear my comments 
and they may smile at you in the front, but the knife is starting in the back because you stepped on their toes, which I think makes for a bad culture. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to first share, actually, um, I want to touch base sort of on that, that doctorate piece for a second, because I think one of the most impactful things that my doctorate advisor did for me and said to me while I was getting ready to defend was he goes, if you do not use the words, I don't know in your dissertation defense, I will fail you. That's what he told me. He said, he said, (laughs) he goes to me, he says, you are getting a PhD, which means people are looking at you as an expert. You do not know everything. You know, the tip of a snowflake and you have to be able to know the boundaries of your knowledge and understand that other people bring in different viewpoints or you will be dangerous. <laughs> and so I think that was one of the most impactful things that he did. So actually that's the story I share with people um, as one of the first I th- things. I is- think if I can interject on that, I had a similar experience. I had one of the members of my committee, an exercise physiologist, his area of expertise was lactate metabolism. And we had a lactate seminar and somebody said, you know, could you draw the molecule of lactate up on the board? Because, you know, it might help us understand these things you're talking about. He went up on the board and started drawing. He said, you know, we're going to take a five minute break because I think this is correct, but I want to check and make sure. And I remember talking with a couple of my friends. It's like, nobody thought, oh, wow, he's an idiot. It's like, wow, he's got enough confidence to say, I don't know. Let me go check. And I think when he said something for in subsequent years, you had a tendency to take him more seriously because you realize he wasn't just uh, trying to say, well, I, I know everything. Right. Yeah. And I think those are important things. And I, I don't know when you were defending, but I know I didn't have smartphones back when I was defending. And so that wasn't a thing you could just pull up quickly. You had to go get your book out. And <laughs> um, But yeah, I mean, I think that's an important thing is to to help people understand that perspective. And, you know, my advisor helped me with that, but really to help mentor, whether it's students or your staff or, um, you know, even others, just that perspective. Um, Because I think we do all have the ability to learn from each other. And, um, you know, I think that's what I try to model um, and try to encourage. And it's really hard because you have to be able to deal with being vulnerable. Um, and that's a really difficult thing is we can't all deal with being vulnerable in front of other people. And, um, that there's a trust about that and there's just opening yourself up to being wrong or not knowing. Um, and if you get shot down for that quickly, you're going to be less likely to do that again. So it's really just helping people to know that that's sort of expected and it's expected that you open up to that. Um, and I think too, sometimes it's going to be having difficult conversations. I remember back to, one of our very first conversations. So we like to try to break down the silos. That's what we, what we do. And um, I think back to one of our first conversations with our golf instructors, our physical therapists and our biomechanical engineers, where we all had different definitions on what pelvic tilt was. You know, some of us were thinking about it one way. Some of us were thinking about it in another way. And the golf instructors, you know, have a different jargon than the physical therapists and the physical therapists have a different jargon than the biomedical engineers. And we spent an hour all arguing the same point. And the, the two good things happened from that. One is we weren't afraid to have the conversation with each other. We also weren't afraid to apologize to each other afterwards. And then now we all know from that experience that we do speak differently. So I think sometimes you do have to be willing to have that conversation and be wrong and realize that you all had a moment and kind of move on from there because sometimes that's the moment in which you actually learn and 
and can move forward from to actually break down those silos and have meaningful conversations. You might have to have that awkward one. Valuable words. I'm curious, kind of along these same lines, this was not the way I intended the conversation to go, but I think, I think it's great. Um, how do you make time for those hour long meetings talking about pelvic tilt or, you know, the, the best way, because typically I know in academia and in many medical professions, there has to be a purpose or a goal. I mean, I'm sure you remember being in grad school, the opportunity to sit around and talk and have those conversations, but when you're getting paid either a salary or, uh, by the hour, you know, it's a lot more difficult to say, Hey, you know, twice a week for 45 minutes or, or once every two weeks for an hour, we're going to do that. It has to be buy-in all the way up. How, how do you create the ability to do that? Or was that something that was there when you arrived at Sanford and you just built on it? That's a really good question. I'd have to think a little bit more than um, just in a quick response as to whether it was there before or whether we've been building it. I think it's a little bit of both. And I don't remember if it was before we started recording or, or during this conversation that you were talking about, you know, the, the applied piece, right? How do we take science and we apply it and how did that, that happen? And for us, it was very intentional. We knew that we wanted to integrate science and testing and technology and physical therapy and golf and all of these different pieces together. We knew that we wanted to bring the experts together with the athlete in mind to really be able to help that athlete perform their best. In order to do that, you can't just have each person handing off, right? You all have to understand each other's areas and whatnot. So we really did in the beginning prioritize like learning about each other's areas, having some of those conversations and built a program together. So we do golf research. Our golf head golf pro has always been involved in the conversations about where we're taking our research, what those research questions are. He's not a researcher, but we can't answer a question unless we know what's actually important. And we researchers aren't going to know what's important without talking to the golf professional. So a lot of these conversations were not meant to be conversations, say, about pelvic tilt. They were meant to be conversations about programming and operations and things like that. But out of necessity, you have to be able to understand what you're talking about. And luckily, people were able to say, wait, I don't understand what you're saying here. Or I don't understand what you're saying there. Um, so I think by just being a team that works together, some of these conversations happen more naturally, and then you end up making the time because if you don't all understand, then you actually can't get to the point where you can work with the athlete and help the athlete get better. And we've gotten to the point now where our 3D biomechanics testing with motion capture is an integral part of our golf instruction. Um, you know, and our PTs have a movement component that's an integral part of working with our golfers. And so we couldn't get there without all of these pieces to get us to that point. Does that make sense? It does. I know one of the conversations that uh, I can't recall when I had it or who I had it with, uh, probably was not more like a conversation. It was more likely a teaching to me is, you know, there's always the push pull. And I know in one of my professional organizations, you know, the applied people always say, well, there's just too much research at this conference. And the researchers always say, there's too much applied stuff. Where's the research? And I think very many of them uh, forget if you're saying there's too much research stuff, you're in your applied silo or vice versa. And the fact is, if there wasn't an applicable use, you wouldn't be able to do the more basic things or the research. On the other hand, if there wasn't the research, we probably would still be saying, 
you know, you lost a leg. Well, here's a wooden stick to put on your leg and good luck with uh, getting down the ski hill. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting because the medical community is really adopted. Like we need to do both. Right. And so the sports community is getting there. One of the things that's been really fun has been being involved with like, um, we're going to be the next uh, host for the world scientific Congress of golf. That'll be here in Sioux Falls next year. And that's been really fun because it does bring golf instructors and scientists and technologists and coaches and, you know, everybody together to really talk about those things in an, in an interactive format. One of the nice things we're trying to do is typically they've been more classroom sessions and we're going to be having it at a top golf like facility that we have on our sports complex called great shots. And it has 60 bays plus our golf Academy that has all the technology in it. So not only will you be able to talk about the research that's been done, but you and a golf instructor could stand there together, actually swinging, hitting golf balls and talking through that. Okay, I understand what you're telling me. This is the way that the hip moves. How can I teach that? How can I cue that? And having those interactive moments. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not just golf that's starting to go down that path where you see all of the different professionals starting to talk to each other in Facebook communities and whatnot. But baseball has gone that way as well with the new American Baseball Biomechanics Society that Dr. Fleissig has um, raised up and starting to see the MLB teams and the scientists and um, the technology companies and everybody starting to come together and having these meetings. And I think COVID's been nice because a lot of these people have been moving into digital conversations. And so over the summer, we've been seeing baseball and um, golf starting to have even a lot more interactions at the national and international levels about all of these questions and starting to just talk to each other, really igniting a lot of interesting things that I think will actually change the way that um, all of these people talk to each other. Talking with Dr. Lisa McFadden, one final question before I let you get along with your day. I think I'd be remiss in not asking this, especially I've tried to ask everybody over the last five or six months, how has your job and the way you handle your job changed since uh, COVID? I know from talking to Dr. Gillum, he said it hadn't hit quite as badly in South Dakota as other areas, but I know just across the country, let alone the world, there's been significant changes for most people, if not everyone. Yeah. I mean, it, it's been interesting. So, and it's been different throughout the entire, the entire time. So back in March, um, when things were starting to, to hit, I made the decision that our whole team would move remote because we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know what was going to happen, what the risk was going to be. So everybody moved to a remote um a remote environment. We had a lot more conversations on Microsoft Teams and things like that to keep everybody interactive. And we set you know, short-term goals because we didn't really know what the future was going to hold. Um, so we really focused on short-term accomplishments. And that also allowed our team, especially those who had children who no longer had daycare or school, to be able to have a little bit more flexibility um, and, and be able to take care of their families as well. As the pandemic's gone on, we've been very fortunate that uh, up until recently, we were pretty stable. Um, college kids going back to school has not surprisingly driven up a lot of numbers. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think we're continuing to monitor the situation. For me, it's really made sure that I'm much more aware of what people's risk factors are as well, because some people are much more willing to say, eh, this will be fine. I'm willing to take that risk. And others are much more likely to say, I'm, I'm really nervous. I'm really hesitant. And so um, one of the things I've been impressed from our organization is uh, we as an organization immediately started implementing 
regular frequent communication, talking points, just the ability for us to focus on what our staff needed, whether that was in the clinic or in our world. What do our teams need? What do we need to be telling them? How can we keep them informed? And we started what we called our Facts Over Fear campaign. And that allowed us to just push out tons of information, whether it was about testing or numbers or PPE supplies, whatever it was. And then we looked for a lot of feedback, getting a lot of information back from our teams so that we could really understand where they had concerns. And so like we have a PPE dashboard now because people are worried that we don't have enough personal protective equipment. So everyone can see how much PPE we have and that we're, we're well stocked. Um, and so those are the types of things that I think our organization has done is we really transition to focusing on our staff, communicating as effectively as possible, and just making sure we met their needs. And we also focused on wellness and providing a lot of resources. And I think for us as a healthcare organization, and um, it really just was how do we take care of our people and how do we take care of our communities and make sure we navigate this efficiently. And I think that's been what it's all about. And that's for me been my lesson is people respond really well. When you focus on them and you take care of them and you take care of your community, the response is that people are, are there for you as well. And I think that's been my key take home is, is take care of each other through this because that's the only way we're all going to get through this and, and on the other side. Great words. We've been talking with Dr. Lisa McFadden. She is the Director of Engineering and Applied Science at uh, Stanford excuse me, Sanford Health in South Dakota, North Dakota, and Minnesota, as well as some places in Africa. Dr. McFadden, thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.